So hi to everyone who's just joined us. My name is Bambe and this is our second live stream ever. Um, thank you to everybody who, who's logged in to hear us yammer on. Um, I am armed with yet another sweet baby jab. We're actually starting to run low on beer, which wow. is starting to worry me a little bit. Um, but yes, we are here to speak to our guest today. Brandon, how do you say your last name? Obunu. Obunu. Okay. Perfect. Yay. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the difficulty people can have with uh, <laughs> ethnic names. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, your, your first initial is actually a C. Are we allowed to ask what the C stands for? Sure. You can ask me whatever you want to. I mean, I, <laughs> I ain't got to answer it. You can ask me whatever you want to. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, 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 it's Chike. Chike. That's awesome. Yeah. Where did your name come from? Well, I mean, it was given to me kind of like a title. I mean, I have, I have a complicated family history, but I, I did spend as a baby. My father is Nigerian. And when oh. I was there in Nigeria, they kind of like gave me a, a title. Uh, so it wasn't like part of my formal name. It was kind of like a title. And TK means power of God. Oh, wow. Cool. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, my name translates as warrior princess. So between the two hey, of now. Take over the world, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think I think yours is a bit a little bit cooler, but uh That's you know. Quite kind. <laughs> um yeah, so how's it going? You're you're actually still in Providence, right? That's right. Still in Providence and um uh, it's going pretty well. It's going pretty well. Um yeah. just staying healthy. Staying doing the best I can to stay healthy. Um I think I think I'm doing about as well as I can, given the circumstances. I think, I'm, if anything, I'm surprisingly well, given the circumstances. I think, uh, I mean, I have a deep concern about the problem, mm -hmm. but with regards to it's affected my personal life, you know, overall, I've weathered it pretty well. Yeah. So the last time we've actually met before once, and mm -hmm. we had the pleasure of going out and hanging out and having dinner. And yep. at that point, you were still in Vermont and you were about to start your job at Brown, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell us about your career trajectory. How did you end up? You're mm -hmm. currently an assistant professor there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, so uh, it's been, a. I think on at one level, it's been kind of very linear and on another level, less so. Um, so I've, I started out, uh, I was interested in chemistry and mathematics in college. So I studied chemistry and mathematics uh, at Howard University. And um, after that, I did a U.S. Fulbright Fellowship um, in Kenya where I studied malaria chemical ecology. Um, and that was my first real, real infectious disease. Um, I think that did two things. That kind of really, really threw me into infectious disease and that threw me into ecology, which I had never taken before. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And really that year, I became kind of 100% self-taught um, in ecology and evolution. And at that point, I fell in love with it as a perspective on disease, um, which I knew I wanted to, to study. Um, and around that time, so I, at that point, I was actually going to, en enrolling in medical school. Um, and I said, well, you know, I, I, I always knew I was going to do research, um, but I said, you know, I have to figure out a way to kind of merge ecology and evolution uh, with these kind of medical and biomedical questions however I can. And at that point, it was a young field. It wasn't like now where there's whole institutes and big things and whole, like and nobody was really doing that back then. 
Um, So, you know, I think I joined, I was very fortunate to join one of the very few labs that was mindful of that. And that was Paul Turner's lab at Yale who studied virus evolution, um, but he was in a ecology and evolution department. So I joined his lab, went through my, you know, went through my, went for my first two years of preclinicals, but I was really in the lab from very, very early. Um, and during the preclinical years, um, you know, it was, it was fine, but I want I really, really started thriving once I hit, uh, graduate school. And, uh, once I hit grad school, you know, I think, uh, I would, it, it was just, it pretty much has been, I said, this was it using ecology and evolution. And I got more quantitative. I added that to the perspective on kind of, uh, disease evolution, drug resistance, uh, um, and, you know, more or less, you know, I think that that was the decision. I said, I'm going to be an academic that studies these things. And I entertained kind of combining this with a, with a clinical career. Um, but, um, but ultimately, uh, you know, it ended up being uh, purely as a basic scientist, which is where I, which is where I now I did a postdoc after that at Harvard with Daniel Hartle. And I think there I kind of got some pure population genetics training. Um, and as a, with a class, a classical population geneticist. And I also got really into the drug resistance problem when I was in the Hartle lab. Um, and it was, I was really largely self-taught kind of mathematically and computationally since my PhD was probably 85% experimental, but I think the quantitative and computational and mathematical bug that, you know, I've, I've always been interested in it, but it kind of has grown as my career has grown, which I think is a little bit unusual. Uh, for people who do my kind of work. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like mathematical modeling is what all the cool kids are doing these days, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? I have a lot of, I have a lot of this, this problem in particular has, you know, I get a lot of emails from a lot of, or, you know, conversations with a lot of my clinician friends. And a lot of them are like, I mean, we don't know what we're doing. You and your <laughs> friends sort this out because we just, yeah, I mean, which is not true, right? Obviously, they do know what they're doing, and so many different people are so important uh, for their work during during a pandemic, during an epidemic, during an outbreak. But the idea is, you know, um, the skill set of being able to think about a problem at a large scale and being able to kind of construct a way to understand that, and um, is, uh, I think it's. It, it is very, very useful. Um, I mean, well, it, it helps one think about the problem. I think whether or not the models have themselves have been useful, I think is a different debate that we can, conversation we can have. But I think as a skill set, yeah, it is nice to know that the decision that I made in terms of what to train and how to train um, ended up being, you know, useful or some people think it's useful at least. Yeah. So I've seen a little message pop up from our very first ever podcast guest, Jacob Scott. How are you doing, Jacob? Uh, <laughs> Eat a man. Um, Dr. And he's Scott. In, yeah. Mathematical, mathematical modeling is where all the cool kids are. Who would have thought we'd end up cool? <laughs> well, I think he's a, you know, I think Dr. Scott, you know, is a very, is a perfect example of somebody who, um, right, uh, who is in, and he, you know, he, he stuck to his guns in a classical way and trained clinically in a classical way, and then also, and then added this new and interesting and innovative aspect to his research program, and I think, um, you know, I know, I mean, I don't, I, I, I haven't had this conversation with him, but, you know, people thought I was crazy when I was talking about ecology and evolution and modeling in medicine. Like, I'm, I'm ever getting laughed. I mean, it was a real fight with me in the medical school when I was doing it. It was a real, I mean, it was a real, real fight. They were like, why would you want to study evolution? That's guy that was after, you know, and, you know, he was able to stick it out and do all the training and look how elegant and beautiful his research program is now. So he's a, an example of somebody in this profession who's done it right. And I think, um, and in cancer, 
and uh, at least as much as infectious disease now, we see the benefits of this perspective. Yeah, for sure. Um, so before we delve into your research properly, um, we were looking at your, your very neat website. And um, mm. can you tell me why you put it on Medium? First of all, begin by explaining what Medium is for anybody who doesn't already know. Yeah, well, Medium is a, it's a, uh, it is a kind of, formalized uh blogging or publishing blogging slash publishing kind of framework where people write and i think what it benefits from in terms of writing is that it, the typeset is beautiful it's kind of formatted in a way that makes whatever you write kind of look and have the appearance of a real article <laughs> it adds this kind of journalistic flair and you know uh you know uh, look to the things that you're writing um i think for me I write a lot, right? Um, this is something, that's my artistic thing is I like writing. So, um, you know, I've had like, I've taken various little stabs at the blogosphere through the years. Um, but I think when I made, when I decided to be, you know, I was a sports writer for many, still am. So I was a sport, I mean, I've done writing is kind of like my thing, is my thing. And, and, it, and now I'm kind of bringing that into the work that I do in the lab. But my, what I'm saying is I was familiar with Medium for many years because I was, you know, thinking about like, maybe I would launch whatever writing I do there. So I was more, I was familiar with the formatting for that reason. Mm -hmm. And when it came time to look at all the, you know, the various options, um, I said, well, this will lend itself to me being able to blog about the work going on in the lab um, easily and kind of make that in an interesting format. And I actually haven't done much of that, but I will. Um, and, but I found out a way to kind of make it function as a regular website um and and kind of in 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 and make it artful and interesting and you know i'm just i think i'm sort of a unique dude and so it, it you know why should i do this why should i do what everybody else does so you know i think putting that together it just ended up being uh being being how i wanted to present myself to the world professionally yeah so um you have this very uh no, I was going to try and get a picture up of uh, one of the images that you have on your website when you look up your research specifically is just a series of orange dots all interconnected and then there's another one underneath mm -hmm. of blue dots and they're all interconnected mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I guess this is by way of explanation of what your work is. So can you <laughs> explain what it is that you do? Yes. Yeah, so I think, I mean, like a lot of people in our generation, I mean, I have a lot of interests and I think, you know, just like my website is unique, you know, I don't, we, you know, just like Dr. Scott is now and, and you know, doesn't have to apologize for bringing math and physics into, you know, cancer research, you know, I unapologetically am interested in a lot of different things. And I think what I think the challenge or the fun has been uh, being able to find themes that connect all of my work. And I think there are. Um, I think that, I think thankfully there's like a, there's a term now for like, there's a term evolutionary systems biologist, which somebody called me one day before a seminar and I've rocked with it since then. I'm not, and certainly that, that means a lot of things to different people, but to me, I, I'm, I'm interested in, bi, in, in biological interactions and most disease phenomenon, whether they be at the molecular level, at the protein atomic level, right? You know, at the protein level or at the societal level, uh, come because of peculiar and interesting kind of interactions between parcels of information or individuals or genes or what have you and understanding what are the consequences of these connections. 
Um, there's another field, right, of complex systems, which is all over this. And that's kind of a lot of runaway physicists who now kind of, uh, you know, have been talking about emergent phenomenon. So there's a lot of kind of fields that think about these types of things. Um, but that is the theme that runs through this and I, um, uh, a lot of my research interests. And so I my interest, I'm doing, I'm doing a project in protein engineering now, where I'm interested in the way uh, different kind of sub-modules within proteins interact in kind of framing how an enzyme evolves. And a lot of that is kind of protein engineering and, and protein evolution. Um, I'm interested in the way mutations kind of dance with each other within a protein when it comes to things like antibiotic resistance, right? And I'm interested in how kind of, uh, you know, people and, and, and pathogens interact with the environment in the way diseases spread. I'm, I'm interested in the interaction between needles that carry hepatitis C virus and people interact in framing an hepatitis C virus epidemic. So I'm always thinking about the way things stick together in a system and does that inform something interesting on a larger level? I mean, I think the philosophical reason why I, I frame my research that way is, you know, for a lot of reasons, my personality and, you know, my ethnicity and my background, I've never really fit in anywhere in science or medicine. And so everything to me is a, is a higher order interaction, right, between me and my environment. I'm always thinking about kind of how I fit in and, you know, I've tried to make my uniqueness and my differentness work for me in a good way. And so I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a natural at being able to think about how things stick together and disentangle them. That's really cool. Um, before we go on, I wanted to say that, you know, it, it would be awesome if anybody has questions to ask them in the meanwhile. So we'll answer them um, while Brandon is talking. Oh, and look, there's one from Dr. Basantha. Um, and he says, what do you make about models like the one people talk about by scientists at Imperial Colleges and how they're used by politicians? So I think maybe for anybody who's missed this, can you tell uh, everybody what the Imperial College um, story yeah. is? So, you know, that's um, the Imperial College story is, I mean, there's a lot of authors, so I don't want to say one person's name and let that be the person. It's a large group of people that work on these, these problems. Um, but Niall Ferguson is the kind of the big personality associated uh, with, you know, with this stuff. And the Imperial College, I mean, I want to say a date, but there was a there was an initial model that made some pretty well. Part of the problem is the way it was covered. OK. And it made a range of predictions. OK. It made many, many, many different predictions uh, about what could happen under various circumstances. And um, and one of them. Uh, well, there, even before that, there were there were models. <laughs> yeah, let's let's kind of dial back. There were some initial models that were misinterpreted and used to justify this notion of herd immunity, right? The notion that um, you know, a lot of a lot of this crowd obviously understands what herd immunity is, but there's a fraction of a population in a as a disease spreads through a population. There's a fraction above, right? Once the of recovered individuals in that population that once you reach that threshold, a disease will kind of die out on its own. And that's kind of a, that herd immunity is used to guide vaccination efforts or how many people need to get vaccinated in, us for, in order for us uh, to feel like we can, we can really make a, take a, make a big dent in a growing outbreak. Um, they were early models that were used to, uh, um, to justify that as a actual means of treating and dealing with COVID-19 as an outbreak. Now the, the Fergus, this, the, 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 now the big model, and then that was 
thankfully that was scrapped as a strategy because the strategy there was let everybody else get infected and just kind of uh, wall off uh, older people. Big uh, model from Nia Ferguson at all came out. And this is the big kind of controversial one that said that spoke of millions of potential infections in the United States and up to half a million in the United Kingdom. And that was kind of the high rate. And that was, and that spoke about, about the, that outcome really even with some social distancing, but very few interactions, but it talked about a range of possibilities. It talked about a range of possibilities based on a bunch of different potential outcomes. Um, and that one, right. And I think that finding was kind of initially immediately like, oh, these, these, these modelers are using this to make these grave and kind of, uh, you know, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. They're hysterical. They're kind of trying to incite, um, right. This panic. But in fact, it was a very particular set of things that were being kind of right. Right. They were being communicated with that model. A few days later, right. Uh, Ferguson, you know, spoke about testified of, that the deaths would top out, you know, in the tens of thousands. And so it looked like he was walking back the model. It wasn't walking back the model. He was just talking about the different kind of circumstances that we can expect um, different ranges of death. So I think politicians have, and you know, in, in the United States, right, the, the administration has done something similar. It's this cherry picking of the parts of a model that we like. When we get a result that is convenient for the things that heads of state want, which is to do nothing or or to 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 lambast the opposition saying, you know, uh, or to talk bad of poorly of scientists. Um, it's this cherry picking and mathematical modeling. It just doesn't really lend itself to that type of misinterpretation. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's kind of difficult to imagine when you're trying to work out how this um, all of this information is compiled, like you say, in the process mm -hmm. of your research, you're interested in everything from uh, the, the genes, uh, you are looking at the disease-causing organisms, all the way up to mm -hmm. humans and populations. I mean, mm -hmm. where do you get the data from and how on earth do you start to stitch those things together? So great question. And I'll answer that in the context of the current situation, right? Here's something about outbreaks that we all, you know, that, that's fascinating. Um, the data are always bad, 100% of the time. 100% of outbreaks you get, the data are terrible, <laughs> right? Like by definition, particularly if it's an emerging disease, you call it emerging for a reason because you haven't seen it before, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, at any kind of large level. That's why it's emerging, <laughs> right? If it's a disease you know about, you, you know, that's different, right? I mean, with influenza, you know, you know, influenza is still a humongous problem in the world, not small, humongous problem in the world. But we, you know, it's the reason why we got a vaccine every season because we got that when we understand it reasonably well at least you know most of the strains that circulate um in an emerging disease context the data are always bad We're, we it takes us time to figure out the very very basic things the very very basic parameters like you know these terms like incubation period and latent period and how long it takes for you to become infectious and um, and, and then, of course, the race to understand this metric known as the R0, which we've all heard about and the debate about that and how varying that is. Um, it takes, you know, it takes time to figure this out. Now, the thing about mathematical models is this, and this is what's fascinating and important. And if something emerges, what I will say is I'll defend my modeling colleagues, but, you know, I'm guilty of this as well. What I'm going to say, we got to do a better job communicating, right? What, what, what these models are for and how we're doing it. And I'm not, it's not, I'm not chastising anyone. I'm just saying, given the circumstances we're in, with great power comes great responsibility, right? When you can, when your words can be used to justify problematic policy, you got to step to the plate and be able to explain this better. 
So the way I look at mathematical models is I have a bunch of analogies that I use when I'm teaching this. And the fact that I actually learn math later, I think helps me explain this stuff a little better, right? Because I'm not mm -hmm. one of these math wizards, like, right? I mean, I had to learn this stuff later. And so I know how breaking it down helps me. It's like that math is especially important when you the data is bad and you don't know. Because what it allows you to do is stick the information that you have together and explore a universe of possibilities, right? So when I don't know, right, when I only have, you know, a limited data here, I can say, and if I'm saying explicitly, you know what, I don't know what the incubation period is, but I don't know how this virus survives outside the body. I don't know if asymptomatics can spread. I don't know, right, if, 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 it's, if it's assessed seasonality. I don't know these things, but you know what? Let's put the few pieces of information we have together and let's ask some questions about what we might predict under different circumstances. And so for that reason, the models are especially important in circumstances where you don't know. The key is that the predictions that you're making, they're not hard predictions and that's not the point, right? There's a couple of famous quotes about models. Um, one is, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I don't, you know, I, don't, I actually don't like that quote that much because mm -hmm. um, I mean I understand it but it's, it's like cutesy and cynical but I don't I don't like that I like the one that says um, the point of models is to sharpen the questions yeah. it makes the questions clear it resolves and, and you hone in on the things you don't know it, it, you can generate hypotheses that way and you know what we, what we need to learn and I think in these circumstances, they can be, and they already have been, very, very useful. And, they, and in many, many other pandemics and uh, epidemics, they've been useful in making kind of realistic projections. And if we treat this many people under these circumstances, we can, you know, we can predict X, Y, Z happening. Yeah. So you basically answered uh, David's question in the course of that. But related mm -hmm. to that, so uh, Patrick asks us, when a math mm -hmm. model is being misused, especially by news mm -hmm. organizations, government, politicians, what do you think mm -hmm. is the best avenue to correcting this? So, great question. And I think, you know, this is another thing we're learning live now. I mean, this is, one, this is why it's so fascinating about COVID-19. There's a lot of things about our, our culture, the cultural identity and role of the scientist is changing. Like, or, or, or rather, we're learning about it. So, a lot of people that I might have taken to social media to do this, you know, mm -hmm. and as trivial and silly, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, we, we may spend, you know, as much as social media is about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. I know some pleading people in here. So, you know, um, it's also right, a, a venue for people, you know. So one of, the, one of my heroes in science is a, a guy named Carl Bergstrom. And Carl Bergstrom, you know, has, is also a person, you know, who I, I, I like. I'm like, I, I admire him for a lot of reasons, part of which is a career taking many different past and now he's kind of like a misinformation kind of uh, expert uh, but he was you know he got it he was infectious disease he was in pop gen he did he did a lot of the things that i did but he you know like really daily does a really good job taking on lies publicly and i mean again i'm biased because i like him i don't know him but it seems like he's got a lot of followers who are not necessarily scientists that that message is landing on um i know with me um, you know, one of the reasons why I like writing, I've been successful at landing my work in pro publications. I just got a text the other day from some, so I wrote an article for this website called The Undefeated, which is an ESPN site, a uh, sub site, but you know, in sports, I wrote an article about, you know, the not, you know, how, how sports relationship with MRSA helped inform their, you know, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus for those, you know, a, you know, staph, a really bad untreatable staph infection how the experience with that helped them understand 
right? You know, the COVID nineteen a little bit better. And if they said that was one of their most read pieces, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It's like I'm like, huh? The ESPN. Like on ESPN? Yeah. Like, huh? And so my point is, we we have to be willing to put, and they they want me to do produce more content. So we'll see. But my point is, um, we have to be willing to immerse ourselves in these settings and conversations that um, we, we may or may not be comfortable. Um, one of the things I'm dealing with now ethically to answer that question, this is actually an ethical question that I might actually ask Twitter about. I keep getting asked by these news sources. I've done some press, and which has been cute and fun, but um, I get asked by sources that I don't know or trust or like, right? And I'm like, nah, I'm not going to talk to this place. I don't know who they are. They're foreign. And, you know, and, and that, some of that's just American ignorance. But some of that is reasonable. We don't want our stuff to be met to the point that I was just asked. I don't want my words twisted and used against me. But at the same time, just because your, you know, just because your, you know, magazine or whatever might be a religious group that I don't necessarily, you know, it might be religiously based in a way that I don't really find myself or it's a newspaper that, you know, might be used by the state as propaganda sometimes your listeners still deserve access to the facts. Mm -hmm. Your readers still deserve access to the facts. So I'm kind of like, I don't know if that's the ethical stance. I don't know if I should not do something just because I don't like this newspaper or, you know, like I'm not Catholic, for example, but one Catholic news station wanted to Skype interview with me. And I I mean, you know, and number one, I shouldn't discriminate. I mean, let's, I mean, if let's just say I was a person who did not like religion, let's just say that, which is a perfectly reasonable stance um, or did not trust religious based Mm -hmm news cycles, which is a perfectly reasonable stance. I mean, Catholic people are going to get COVID too. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, I feel like they should know what the facts. And so some of this I haven't necessarily solved, but I do think that we should be willing to immerse ourselves in conversations and spaces because as we've, as we've observed, everybody else don't do it better than we do. We got to do it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I, I would kind of argue that there are a lot of amazing science communicators out there as well. Totally. And totally. We, we definitely need them to help craft the message because totally. I think one of the biggest problems with asking scientists to do this is that up until recently, they have not been getting the training. I mean, to, to speak to the press, for example, uh, to right. be able to craft their own message so that it's not misconstrued. Um, I think all of these are important skills that need to be incorporated into our scientific training and, right. um, you know, that hasn't been happening to date. But um, right. I completely agree that I, I think it's inconscionable for scientists in this day and age not to try and communicate their research beyond, like, the formal publication machine. Yeah. I or if that, that means, I like, I like the point you raised. I mean, if that means talking to a good communicator. I mean, I mean my, my point is doing something, you know, like, to your point, like some here, yeah, some of my colleagues, I, ain't, I mean, I love them, but I don't want them talking to the press. <laughs> like, no, no, please do not talk to the press. But find somebody who can, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, I don't know if, was Kyle Marion on the show? I feel like she has, y'all know Kyle? Yeah, yeah. Her talk to somebody like that. Okay, yeah, talk to Kyle, talk to that community of people who are really, really good at this because they're going to have a, a way to communicate these ideas. Yeah, so actually, let's take a little detour while we're talking about Kyle, for those who don't know her. Um, she runs a program called the Symposium Academic Stand-Up. She is a lapsed anthropologist, but she teaches people how to do science communication through one of the means being scientific improvisation. And Brandon, you did some comedy for her, right? Yeah, I've done two two sets for her. 
I've done two sets for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done two, 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 two stabs of stand up for her. So uh, I'm, I'm like 50, 50 right now. <laughs> huh? <laughs> what made you try it? Well, I had done, so I've been doing a bunch. So I also did Story Collider. You know, I, I, I had, I've had some success with the storytelling and, you know, and I write. I mean, I think, I, you know, I think being a person who's willing to share different parts of my experiences, I, I don't want to do it too much. I mean, I, you know, the work I do is in the lab and in public. That's who I am. I don't want to be one of these public people. That's not who I am. But I'm willing to share my story if to people who ask. And I had the opportunity to do Story Collider, and I think that was people really enjoyed that. Um, and I think I think it was I think it was after yeah it was after that I got yep it was after that because I got connected to Kyle, and um, I did one show in October, and I think one one show in February well, October nineteen twenty nineteen October in February, and so you know I, some of the some of the stuff I did in Story Collider was funny, and you know I think I'm, I'm sort of funny. Um, I think <laughs> how we doing? Um, and, um, and I've done, I've done a couple of, uh, like I said, I had one, one good show, one bad show, but the thing is I've learned, I've, I think that was a very powerful and important experience for me because, you know, I learned how, uh, how hard it is to get up there and tell jokes like this. That's, that's an art form, uh, that's, that's just really quite challenging. So I've been able to do that and I want to do more comedy. I want to do more comedy. So I'm, I will be doing more hopefully. Yeah. Um, I have to say, so I've been on Story Collider as well and it's, uh -huh. Like, it is the most intense experience I think I've had in terms of public speaking. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I can appreciate how, how that worked out. But, and, and I see how actually trying to get a laugh out of an audience is a level up from that. Because at least with my story, it's like, okay, I, I know I've got a good enough story that I think people are going to stay engaged. But it's like, okay, now I have to do this and make these people laugh. That's not for me. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, laughter is the best medicine for me. I mean, I love, I love it, you know, I love, I love it. So I try to generate in it and I, I generate it. And so, uh, so I want that to be a part of my career. Hopefully I can do more scientific stand-up or, you know, academic stand-up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so going on to the, one of the facets of your personality that you find very important is inclusivity. And I guess that's not just within science, that's within your communication. Mm -hmm. And I recently mm -hmm. read your, your Wired piece about the people who are being, um, you know, they're, they're being affected far more than other populations. Can you mm -hmm. tell us more about how the piece came about and what your message was from that story? Yeah, um, so the piece, uh, the most recent piece, uh, How Social Distancing Became Social Justice, um, was about really it, it came from my interaction with the idea of social justice, which is an insight for mathematical modeling, right? The whole flatten the curve movement, right, was about was an insight for mathematical modeling, it, it, right? Flatly, so that I mean, no pun intended, that that came directly from that 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 experience, and so I was looking at that develop. And I saw how a insight from mathematical epi got transformed into something deeply powerful and social. Um, and people, you know, flatten the curve is now like this rallying cry, right? From people who are not mathematicians, don't know any epidemiology. And the whole thing about flattening curve, when you say flatten the curve, you're saying something very specific. You're saying this disease may not affect me but it may affect somebody I know. It may not affect me and my parent. It may affect your parent. 
my actions are connected to your well-being. And it ended up being this realization about the power of what contagious disease is. It specifically kind of binds us, right? And that's the problem with this disease. And so it ended up being like, this, is a, this disease is making us rethink all the ways that we're connected in society. So, right, so, you know, flatten the curve, you know, it made us think carefully about, wow, why is it really, really bad that kind of workers don't feel like they're going to get paid? If they feel symptoms, the reason why they're going to work is because there's no way for them to get paid without going to work. So they're going to work and they're not social distancing and they're fomenting kind of local outbreaks in their place of work. You can't blame them for it. They're doing that so they can keep the lights on. So now a conversation around worker, how we treat our workers, right, came about that. We think about things like the criminal justice system. And regardless, even if you're hard on crime, I don't care how you are on crime. Prisoners, individuals do not go to jail to get COVID. They go to jail for the crime that they committed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so the notion that they have to be in these situations where, by definition, they're packed together in these small things, it makes you think that's not right. Maybe we should be thinking about how we can make sure these individuals are safe from this thing. And they're already, on average, going to be in poor health because of the conditions they're living in. So I, it, it's, so flat, I, this idea of flatten the curve, which was a mathematical epi insight, ended up percolating and becoming about much, much more than that, about how we're connected in society in many, many different ways. So I tried to flesh that out in the piece. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's so difficult to... Um to try and imagine and describe the the problem at all. Um, but I know, you know, Kyle was complaining that we need more medical anthropologists, people who do more social studies. And I know that your work is, you know, it's, it's much more holistic than a lot of scientists. Um, mm -hmm. It feels like for a, a pandemic like this, it would really help to have all of those inputs from various people. Mm -hmm. But then how yeah. do you, again, it's because you talked about how you can start to plug all these various things into mm -hmm. potentially an equation or something. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. once you're getting into societal issues, that's another level mm -hmm. up altogether. Yep. Yeah, so this is actually related to another piece I might be writing actually, <laughs> um, which is I mean, directly, which is, um, I mean, part of what I want, might want to call it is, you know, what is a... The, the, my article might be called what exactly is a COVID-19 expert right? or who is an expert. Right. And this is one of the things that this, another thing we'll learn is that everybody got an opinion about how we need to be dealing with this thing. You know what I'm saying? Everybody that got a, a three in AP calculus in, in high school, think they are modeler of disease. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and I think this is and now, I mean, really, this is part of what I'm saying in the article. All right. Well, all right. How do we think about who should contribute to this? Right. Because on one end, you have all of these people who are opportunists or worse. They're actively trying to, like, spread misinformation, you know, saying, you know, here's my website where I have this model for COVID and this is what you do. And it's just crazy. And there's a lot of people, I mean, not to not to say nothing bad about Silicon Valley, because, you know, I mean, those are our friends, too. But a lot of these people would have nothing to do with disease. They're just doing this to raise their brand. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of. Them. 
and they have quantitative skills. They know how to program. They know how to make a front-facing GUI GUI with a with a with a a, 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 a slider for this is what happens when you you know with some kind of un, un, you know model underneath it, you know. But at the same time, we don't want to put barriers around who can contribute to the conversation because a lot of people need to be at the table to, to Kyle's point to the point you just made. A lot of people have smart things to say about how we should be doing. And as we observed, you know, there's economic points, there's cultural points, there's, there's inequality points, there's clinical points. I saw, you know, I saw uh, the theory division and, um, you know, Ray Dunk, and they're thinking about how we can use radiation to, you know what I'm saying, with the, to help the PPE problem. I mean, that's, that's dope. You know, so my point is we don't want to we don't want a culture where only people who've done this kind of work can comment on it. We don't want that. I just think we need to be mindful of people whose intentions are good and they're trying to raise their profile. And I think and I'm kind of giving away the point of the article. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, guys, you guys are family. You know, y'all y'all can know the stuff. Um, part of the point I'm making is well, how do you know who who could contribute and who's an expert and who's not? Um, people who participate in a real expert will always be transparent about their assumptions. A real expert will always provide a way for you to give them feedback. A real expert will always share the things and the assumptions that they're working on. And you see these websites where it's just, you know, you know, I'm just like, come on, you know, uh, you know, so that's what I mean. I think those are some ways we can make sure we know who is serious about this and who isn't. And I think if we do that, then anybody, you know, who has an interesting idea, for example, I'm not going to say his name, a colleague of mine, a very close colleague of mine is like, yo, I'm telling you right now, right? So, for example, let me, let me, let me, I'll do the safer version, which is the role of masks in the way some countries have had success in this versus others. There are countries where wearing masks, either due to air quality or due to their history and experience of dealing with disease, they're used to doing that, right? That's a cultural question. Mm -hmm. I'm not trained in anthropology. You know what I'm saying? And then you look at countries like Italy, like, again, one of, the, one, of the, one of the hypotheses, which is like, again, you get uncomfortable if you say this inappropriately. But for example, how does the culture of, you know, when you kiss people, when you greet them? You know what I'm saying? That's true in a lot of parts of this world. What does that have to do with the potential spread? Now, there's a way if you ask that you can ask it in an offensive way because it's not, you know, that's not, you know, that's not the reason you have an outbreak in place. The reason you have it is because this is a nasty bug that gets around like that yeah. everywhere. What I'm saying is you can begin to disentangle these kind of cultural issues, but you need somebody like Kyle who's trained in anthropology to be able to articulate those questions in a way that I can't. Yeah. So uh, kind of related to that, David said, a lot of math modelers and scientists that don't have your background feel the urge to come up and help with COVID-19 yep. without years of experience in infectious disease. Yep. Is there anything we or they can really do at this stage? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so I just gave, I mean, I gave maybe the scariest seminar of my career yesterday. Okay. Like, this is pretty scary, but like, this is not as scary. I gave physics colloquium. <laughs> At the, at, I'm dead serious. I gave physics colloquium at the Perimeter Institute yesterday, okay? This is like one of the best physics institutes in the world. And, you know, and they wanted me to talk about COVID. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's, just, it's, a, it's this exact question. It's this exact question, right? Because they were like, what can we do? Right? And, and I had to answer this. And um, what I would say is... Um, you know, so, so there's several ways to help out. There's, number one, there's like social helping out and like there's always ways to donate things. There's always ways. I mean, unfortunately, 
there's always needy people in the United States and in the world that need things. And so doing things at the grassroots level for people that are misfortunate and don't have things is always going to be of help. Um, I know, you know, people are shopping for the elderly and those kind of things like that. So that's just at a societal level. There's always organizations doing this kind of work on the ground who need that, that kind of stuff. At the scientific level, um, it's more, that's more challenging. So what does like a world famous particle physicist who wants to you know, help do with this kind of thing? Um, I think what, what the Perimeter Institute did was the right idea. I mean, well, I'm not talking about me, them inviting me was the right idea. I'm saying they reached out, <laughs> they reached out to somebody who works on these related questions. And they were like, yo, tell us what the issue, brief us on it and tell us what the issues are. And I think that's what I would do. I would try to find somebody you know that works on it, that you, you know, whose opinion you trust, have them walk through some of the issues with you. I think breaking off a piece of the problem that's small, that you feel comfortable addressing with whatever skill set you have is fair game, as long as you're not acting like puffing your chest, sticking your chest out and acting like you're a word expert. Um, so, so, um, so, so that's what I would do for people who, you know, maybe don't have the skills. Start small. Start with, start with a small aspect. Start. Even me as a person who studies epidemics, the work that my lab is doing, we haven't really got here, but the work that my lab is doing on COVID-19 is about a very particular piece of this problem. Like, I'm working on the stuff that I work on, and I work on, you know, so you know, that's, I'll just answer the question. <laughs> yeah, so um, one thing I found really interesting in the, the whole process has been how... Uh, people from completely different backgrounds have suddenly come together to start rallying around a central problem. Like this, mm -hmm. this is what science should be, right? Like this, this is yep. what we should have been doing from the yep. outset. And totally. it's only when a disaster kicks in that suddenly people are, so for example, um, University of South Florida, where I work, we've had mm -hmm. recent stories coming out where you've got, um, physicians, biomedical scientists, and they've formed mm -hmm. the first ever collaboration with the Department of Engineering. Um, mm -hmm. So they're 3D mm -hmm. printing the swabs, of which there is mm -hmm. a huge shortage. Beautiful, um, beautiful. And it's not the only one. So the, the face shields as well, that's another thing they're printing off, and that will go to Tampa General, which is our biggest hospital in the area. Beautiful. Um, but not just that, it's, it's all of the things that people of, uh, who proponents of open access and Mm -hmm. uh, collaborative and interdisciplinary mm -hmm. sciences are suddenly saying, well, mm -hmm. like, dudes, we've been saying this forever. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, maybe I'm, I, I'm hopeful um, and I, I try and be optimistic about these things that this will lead to long-term positive change. Um, what do you think? I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I totally agree with you. No, in a good way. I mean, that's just like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, uh, the science is moving at the fastest rate it has in the history of the species. I don't think, I don't know if any ideas have ever moved this fast. I don't, I don't know if anything has moved this fast. I mean, in terms of in the idea space, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I mean, it's hard to compare and certainly the Manhattan project, they got it done in a hurry, but you know, I mean like, you know, um, but you know, but I've never seen anything move this fast. And so that is so inspiring people working, you know, when, when Jacob Scott's group is talking about how to use radiation to get rid of the, part you know the stuff on on uh masks and PP, ppe you know i mean i don't know that work is not his area 
He's yeah. not trying to. That's it. He's not. He's not doing that because he's trying. Well, I don't know. This is this is Jacobs. Let me not. Let me. We need never know. Let me let, let me take take what I say next with a grain of salt. I don't know if he's trying to apply for a grant on that. I doubt it. You know what I'm saying? He's doing that because yeah. people, because people need that information. It's a way that we could actually help address the problem, and that's a good yeah. example. That's the way a lot of this work is done. It's not doing it out of, you know, per, amb- I mean, it, it is, of course, it's tied to our ambitions, but not as we want to do well in this world. Um, and I think seeing that, the, the, how we're exchanging information and knowledge and data in these rapid ways, the types of collaborations that have come about, people at all stages of their education and training, um, international collaborations, this is the way science is supposed to work uh, and even in the even in you know we talk bad about the peer review process that's even moving fast mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying they're, they're kicking you know the big paper journals are coughing out these papers right away and they're pretty strong you know at, le- at least it appears so far so i think there's a lot of promise in the way that we are dealing with this yeah i think the other interesting question is what is going to happen with the the scientists that aren't directly related to covid right now with all the labs right, that are right, having to wind right. down people right. who rely right. on field work for their research that's right um that's, that's a right. whole other question as to how how much of a, a slog it's going to be for them to get back to where they were yeah i mean and you know you don't want covid to suck the air out of all the other problems scientifically you know what i'm saying so that's like a different unrelated thing i mean um i think if we can do things that are obviously this is the current problem so if we can one can put the expertise towards understanding it sure but you know it's like <laughs> my buddy's a pediatrician and he texted me he was just like yo there's a couple nasty flus going around now so be careful you know you know like don't forget that there's there's other things uh, for us to worry about. So on many fronts, we have to be mindful. We have a lot, we have a lot of things to think about as a scientific community. Yeah. Um, so we had a question from far earlier on, but it, it seems like a reasonable place to slot it in now. Um, and anonymous attendee says, it seems that with drug discovery, enzyme mutations are always a step ahead. Do you envision a time when we preempt mutations in drug discovery? I do. I do. And I think, I mean, that is, you know, um, I think, I think a lot of people are thinking about this problem. I think people at Moffitt are thinking about this problem. Um, obviously in, in cancer drug resistance, it's much often a more complicated, um, thing because the mutations are, you know, in many, many genes. Um, but I think in the enzyme context, I think we are going to get to the point where, it's like not only will we be able to predict the mutations that are going to happen in response to a new drug, we'll, we'll know them before the drug hits the market. We'll know them. We'll be able to, and I think now with high throughput ways of kind of, there's a, there's a technology called deep, uh, deep mutational scanning. Mm-hmm. Where you can actually like look at all of the possible mutations in a protein, test their functionality, Mm-hmm. Like you know, I mean, like I mean, not all of them. I mean, not like like that's a lot, right? That's yeah. Uh, I mean, let's see, that that's twenty to the n or whatever. And um, in terms of length, the length of the the length of the length of the you know the peptide. Um, and you know, so that's that's a lot. That's a lot of that's a lot of uh that's a lot of you know that's a lot of variants. But what I'm saying is, we can actually test a whole lot of variants. We can say, all right, well, if this mutation, this mutation, this mutation, this mutation are in, how does that respond to drug X? And we can identify mutations that we think are going to be resistant. 
and we can identify potential routes that um, evolution will take um, in order to get there. And I think that will definitely be true. I even heard actually this, that's actually germane to the problem of di emerging diseases. There's a cool couple of papers I read from a group out in Idaho where they had used protein simulations to identify protein mutations that can bind to a human uh, host cell receptor. Right. So they said, based on the protein folding of this, of this kind of viral spike protein, I think it was an Ebola, um, we should watch out for these mutations in nature. If we see these mutations circulating in nature, you're going to have an emergence event. So I think this is just the moving forward. As we're able to generate more genotype, phenotype maps, we'll be able to have, then we will turn drug resistance and disease emergence into more of a predictive science. Yeah. Can we backtrack a little bit? So for people sure. who don't know um, a lot about mutations. So I had a friend of mine contact me recently. I'm like, I really don't want to give advice about COVID because mm. I feel like a complete oh. idiot. But um, thankfully, it was kind of a basic biological question about uh, yep. mutations and the difficulty in yep. designing vaccines and so on. So can you explain what, um, why mutations are important, how they come about, and what it is that ends up changing within the viruses for it to either make it easy for us to fight or harder? Great question. So the mutation, I'm glad you asked that, because this is... This is I think when you think about the top five questions you get with regards to COVID, you know, one of them is about, oh, is it going to go away in the summer, right? One of them is, are people that are infected immune? One of them is, you know, to the right, right? And things that we think so to be, to the seasonality, we don't know, but maybe a little bit. Um, and the third big one we usually get is related to this, which is, um, is it evolving? Yeah. Is, is the virus evolving right now? And, um, and, the, so I'll, I'll give the answer first, and then we'll explain why, why, why I'm giving that answer. The answer is we do not think that any of the mutations that have accumulated in, in, in SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, are, are conferring any type of adaptation or different type of behavior in the virus. So for now, we think, generally speaking, everywhere around the world, you more or less have the same virus functionally. Right, the virus pretty much does the same thing everywhere. Now, why is that a challenging? Why why is that a, why is that important to understand? And how is it easy to get that wrong? They were headlines. I think it was New Scientist that said two strains of mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 in populations, and it was just like, oh boy. And and right, and the idea there is, do you have different kind of right as virus replicates, as just like it's like human beings and our cells replicate. As you replicate, you're going to introduce errors in any copying process. Um, you know, if you try to transcribe what I'm saying on this microphone, right, and the pet, you're going to probably make some mistakes. Um, any, any copying process makes mistakes. And RNA viruses, of which, you know, you know SARS-CoV-2 is one, make more mistakes than DNA viruses, okay? That's just kind of what RNA is. Now, so if it's making errors every time it replicates and every time it's transmitted, after you know several days or so, or after it's, it moves from patient to patient to patient, per person to person to person, the one that's affected, you know, person number seven, is going to have some mutations in it that look that make it look differently than the one that infected patient number one, um, right? And that's just part of the process of how right it happens. So mutations are errors that are introduced in the viral replication process. 
that's going to happen. So when you look at sequences in the Germany, uh, you know, COVID-19 versus the New York, yeah, you're going to have mutations in the Germany population. That's probably not going to be in the New York population, right? In fact, our ability, right, that it accumulates mutations is how we're able to understand how it's spreading, right? So we actually use the mutations. When we see a mutation that is in Washington State, and then we see another, we isolate from another patient, another, you know, another patient with that same mutation. We go, those are probably related to each other, which means these two things are linked through a chain of infection. So we use mutation to help us understand how this thing is getting around. Um, now, again, right, mutations are the thing that drives ad adaptation. So when we talk about drug resistance, when you're treating with a drug and a, and a, and a, and a bacteria acquires an, a mutation that allows it to not to be able to survive in the presence of that drug, that's mutation. The key is not all mutations confer a phenotypic change. Some mutations are just what we call neutral mutations. Yep. And they're just and they're just occurring and they're a signature and they're there, but we don't think they're necessarily phenotypically meaningful. They don't we don't think they're changing anything essential because people are like, oh my gosh, this is gonna mutate into a super virus. Part of the reason why we're a little bit comfortable making that assumption now is we look at influenza. Influenza provides a very nice compare contrast. A lot of things about it are completely different. It is completely different than SARS-CoV-2 in 99% way, of the ways that it, everything about it. But there are some things we can use to ground our understanding. Yep. Influenza has a higher mutation rate than SARS-CoV-2. It, it, it makes more errors, okay? Despite the fact that it makes more errors, if you think about, think about it this way. When you get the flu shot, which I hope everybody gets, if you get the flu shot, generally speaking, and there are, it is not effective for some people. Some people can still get sick. But generally speaking, that version that they build the flu shot around, generally speaking, that shot is good enough for all the flus you might get through the flu season. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that flu mutates through the season and you might get it in Miami, or you might get it in Florida, you might get it in, you know, Antarctica, not, not Antarctica, <laughs> you might get it in Siberia, you might get it in Siberia or whatever. I was thinking South Pole, North Pole. You might get it in Siberia. The, that's the pro it's probably the flu. The flu yes. is the flu. Now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look different if you actually look at the way those populations, the Siberian flu and the Wisconsin flu and the Tampa flu, yeah, they're going to be different. But they're generally speaking the flu. And so what I'm saying is there's no reason to make this assumption that during the course of an outbreak, a virus is going to just evolve into a super mutant thing that's going to take over the universe. That's not an assumption we have to have. Now, because it is a virus, we should be mindful of that. We should be, mm -hmm. we're, we're always, when we see new mutations, we should always ask ourselves and, and see, is that associated with something that we think is characteristically different about the way this is spreading? We should always ask ourselves that, but there's no reason to make that assumption that it's going to happen. And we don't, and we do not think that's happening now. Yeah. So, um, you're talking about muta mutants and uh, it reminded me that on your website, you also mentioned that you're a big fan of sci-fi. Oh yeah. What's your favorite flavor of sci-fi? Ooh, uh, good question. Um, my favorite flavor. So I like sci-fi and fantasy. So I'm a Lord of the Rings head. You know what I'm saying and all that. But I think sci more sci-fi. And um, I like I like the variety. I mean, I like my space operas like Star Wars and all that. And so you know, but I like my I like the sci-fi that makes you think about. Sci-fi is beautiful because it's like a math, it's like a math model. This is actually a good analogy. I need to write this down. <laughs> it's a good analogy. No, it really is. It's like a math model in the sense of 
what it do, yeah yeah that's it's exactly like a math model. What it does is if you put society together in a movie or a film or a book, and you change something about society using science, and it, it allows you to ask you what would the world be like if this thing was different. You know what I'm saying? And so you know you might like for example, children of men. Right, is a big mm-hmm. one that people have uh, have come up with. That's one of the best sci-fi films ever made, ever, because it did something very simple. It just took away children, a world without children in it, and and that's an idea none of us have ever thought of. And the movie did this beautiful job of. It's like the beautiful thing about that film was this: there was a storyline, but around the storyline, you saw how the world was in a world without children. People aren't acting in interest of long term anymore because there's no rem- there's no reminder about what's going to be in the next generation anymore. Yeah. So everybody's acting and it was a powerful and beautiful commentary and they didn't tell you directly. They demonstrated it through the actions of the character or around the characters. So I, I, I like sci-fi that does that. That makes me ask something very critical about our reality and where we are. I'm a big Gattaca fan. You know what I'm saying? Gattaca changed my life. The film, mm-hmm. right, about genetic discrimination. And I think, you know, as an African-American, um, you know, I, that made me think very deeply about the notion that, you know, discrimination is just something that humans do. And we're mm-hmm. just going to change the way that we do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And before it was this, it used to be, it used to be Italian-Americans in the United States, and they, that got changed, and they changed it to this group, and they changed it to this group, and they changed it to this group. And we just come up with these new ways to dislike each other. And I think... Um, and that, that, that movie really, really kind of resonated with me in that regard. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so I guess we'll probably start to wrap up, but we had another question before we let you go. And it says, um, the scope of study is so interesting. Can you suggest any training or literature that a common biochemist, mm-hmm. uh, i.e. non-evolutionary mathematician, biophysicist, mm-hmm. um, can consume to consider mm-hmm. this way of mm-hmm. thinking in their research? So this is, this is a great question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like half answer this in a good way and half in a wimpy way. So mm-hmm. let's, let's get to the wimpy way first. And that is, the wimpy way is, I want to make sure my information is available to everybody because, right, because I've been very fortunate. Well, this is kind of the answer to both of these questions. I've been very fortunate to connect with some amazing people who are actually developing curricula around this. And they're producing original and interesting and smart content around. I, I was, there's a great scientist who I admire named Pluny Pennings who creates these very interesting videos, a lot oftentimes about HIV drug resistance, but she's kind of recruited me into kind of talking about COVID-19. And then there's like more people. So that, that's kind of like for the public just to kind of give people some basic understandings. Uh, and we, we do, and then there's people doing some really, really smart things that explain even sophisticated concepts. Like there's a, an amazing one about like SIR modeling, which is a form of mathematical modeling that we use. There's amazing videos about that out there. Now there's also some not so good ones. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Context, somebody who we trust. Um, but there's a lot of resources out there around this disease that are designed and engineered to introduce people to these concepts. Um, so, so my, I think the, that the wimpy part of that answer is I can't give you like, Oh, just read chapter three and Basanta and Scott. I can't ask that. You know what I'm saying? I can't tell you that. I, I don't have that right now, but I can say that there are a lot of resources out there. People are emboldened to kind of educate each other. And because so many smart people with good ideas. So I would say it's like, 
find a way to reach me and or all my colleagues and let's have a dialogue about how to get you that information. That's like my only real answer right now. I don't have like one. I w- what I will say is, man, the Atlantic Monthly, I mean, reading their coverage, I'm going to be honest with you, as an actual expert, I read that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I read that. I'm like, yo, that's a good point. So yeah, my point yeah. is there's some really smart people in the journalistic realm. I think reading that stuff really does let you land. The Washington Post stuff coverage has been excellent. Mm-hmm. The New Yorker has there's a New Yorker has a piece that is fantastic from recently about how, and it's like it's a problem I've, I've underappreciated, which is like the relationship between your infectious dose and how sick you get. You know, I don't think the person that wrote that is a scientist, but as a person, I'm like, you know what? I need to work that in my model. So I guess what I'm saying. So e- even these journalistic things have done a nice job of articulating the scientific questions. Yeah. So if we're going to send people to follow you, where can they find you? So, um, so m- mostly Twitter and Instagram or Instagram less so, but we'll see. Um, at big underscore data underscore Kane. For those of you who you know were are not American, there was a rapper named Big Daddy Kane in the '80s and '90s, and it's a it's a it's a play off of one of my favorite rappers. It's a play off of that Big Data Kane, K A K A N E, not C A N E, K A N E. Big underscore Data underscore K A N E. I also have a Twitch channel now at the request of my students. I don't know if you know, yeah, and so. They're like, yo, you need to be playing video games and talking about viruses and stuff like that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm also going to do, I'm also going to like review scientific literature and talk about that, but I'm also going to be doing some gaming. So I'm going to be doing a lot of multimedia around this. Again, not just because people are lost and scared and we all want to understand, you know, and whatever I can add, I can help. If I can help people, then shoot, why not? So what are you working on right now? What's your literally right so now? So my lab, my lab, and, you know, I think after this, you know, I'm going to be deep in the depths of Slack, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, in a good way. I mean, like fighting with my, my students about this. I mean, a good way, like, you know, get this done because we are very interested. One of the things I'm interested in, 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 in infectious disease is transmission, not so much from person to person, but from the environment. Right. So when I right. So and this has come up. Right. So so I have I have several papers on this and I think this has been it's survival outside of the body. How does a virus or a bacteria survive outside the body and what role does that play in transmission in an epidemic? And um, and I've done a lot of work on this. For example, waterborne infection like cholera, you know, Mm -hmm. that's you know, that's that, that that lives in the water. You get the water, you get sick. And that's the that's like the main route, so to speak, through which it gets around. Hepatitis C virus, which is um, you know a, a virus largely now on in the in the in in the in the people who inject drug community, right, which is now a big issue because of the opioid right mm-hmm. epidemic. Um, I study kind of the virus survival on the needle, and I'm like, okay, well, if the virus is surviving for this long, you're going to get this outbreak. And I've I've, I've 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 long been interested in this. I think like three weeks ago now, this landmark paper came out that talked about how SARS-CoV-2 survives on different surfaces. Right. And I was like, I, well, now, like I, at that point, I wasn't doing anything. When I started, I was like, OK, well, fine. Now we have to do this. And so my group now is examining the, the, the epidemic from that perspective. If we know it can survive on surfaces of different kinds. All right. What does that say about kind of how that would influence the trajectory of an epidemic? So if you had a world that was all copper, 
how would it have, how would it get off the ground? If you had a world that was all plastic, right? And it, again, the point of a model is not for me to say anything in particular about Korea or Singapore or Tampa. I'm not predicting. Don't ask me for exact numbers. I'm not doing that. Yeah. It's a way for me to say this is a route of infection we're probably not appreciating fully. Mm-hmm. And when you actually think about how important, this is how important it is. And so my work, we're close to being able to hopefully put up a, a preprint on that within, within the next few days. I mean, you know, to be honest with you. So that's what I'm working on. And I'm working on some more, I'm, I'm doing some experimental work on viral survival on yeah. surfaces. So this issue of the way viruses interact with the world, the environment is, is one of the things I'm working on. I'm interested in. That's very cool and very exciting. Um, yeah. Brandon, it's been really lovely to speak to you. It's so nice to see you again. And hopefully, yes. you know, when this passes, you know, we get to yeah, hang out in yeah. person at some point. No, no, I'd love to. I, you know, I, I don't need, you know, all you got to do is say the word. I like, I like, I like, <laughs> I like the weather. So just say oh, yeah, the word, man, I'll be down. Anytime. Thank you. We got a spare room okay. here. Okay, hey, <laughs> love it, love it. No, but oh. listen, thank you for, mm-hmm. Oh, David just reminded me. We nearly let you leave without your dirt story. Ah, my dirt story, my dirt story. So, I mean, I got, you know, I got, I got, I got so many dirt stories. I don't know if, you know, you know I got, I got, <laughs> I got very few not dirt stories. My, start, my career is a dirt story. Um, my dirt story. I mean, you know, I won't say anything crazy, but what I'll say is, I mean, one of the things I talked about was, you know, through my medium page and like being yourself and learning. One of the things I try to tell people is be comfortable being yourself in this profession because you're going to do the best science when you're yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I walk, I, having a walk, I mean, I've, I felt like I've had to be like somebody else in this profession and you don't, you don't, you don't think well that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not to say that, that is, not to say there isn't a professionalism that goes with your job. You should be a professional in your job, you know, but, but, you know, outside of that, be yourself. And so I remember when I was in graduate school, early in graduate school, I was like deeply intimidated by all these like super genius evolutionary people in my lab. And they were nice people and they're all the great professors now who I'm friends with. Um, but like they, they were nice. It's not like they were mean, but they were like really intimidatingly Spartan. I was coming out of medical school. I don't know anything mm-hmm. about evolution. You know what I'm saying? Um, and one of the things I noticed about them is the way they ate. Like everyone ate, had all these sophisticating eating <laughs> habits, and they were like everybody was vegan and eating granola and tree bark. And I'm just like, nah, you know, these people are eating these freaky foods and comparing sunflower seeds, and and I just felt real bad. You felt bad eating like a regular person in this lab. You know what I'm saying? And I'm, you know, I'm from New York City. I'm from public housing. You know, and I, so one day I had an event where I took, you know, I don't know if you have Popeye's chicken in the cell. I mean, you, you, you yeah, probably. One just down the road. I, I, I had gone to an event the night before. I had all this Popeye's chicken. I was like, yo, I'm bringing this to the lab to eat. And on the way to the lab, I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to get judged for having this chicken. I'm like, all right, damn. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like just wait until nobody's in the, the common area. Okay. Nobody in the common area. And I'm going to heat my chicken up and I'm going to run like, or, or, and it wasn't like I was deathly afraid. You know, it, like I said, it was all good, but I was definitely didn't want to be judged for having my greasy fried chicken from fast food place in this room full of vegan ultra people who, you know, ate tree bark. So I, so I heat my chicken up. Right. But then I realized that I had forgotten, um, I had, I had, a, a, I had left basically the top, I had left the top open of the cell culture, you know, and you had to close it and I hadn't incubated. And I was like, oh, 
I got to go get this. So I ran and got that, did that, troubleshooted all that, right? So I'm in the common area, you know, did all this, did all that, you know, got a phone call, something like that, came back, and the common area is full of people at this point. Everybody's eating their lunch. I did it early. I was trying to eat my lunch early. Common area is full. I'm just sitting there relaxing on my laptop. It's coming with my desk work. And all of a sudden, all I hear is, who left fried chicken in the microwave? <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, and I stood up and I was like, I was like, I was like me. Everyone was looking at me like I was like the most evil person in the world. And I took my little piece of fried chicken and like went back to my desk and, and felt terrible about it. But like, and that's one of those things I look back on, like, you know, why do, you know, we, we lab environments are funny, right? They're, they're cultural experiences and, and learning how to fit in with other people is, is half the experience. But I think that's an example of, you know, uh, how, you know, I, I've always kind of, I've always felt awkward in this profession, even when it comes to things that I eat. But, you know, in hindsight, that's just silly and ridiculous. So I don't know if you, you invite me back, I'll tell you, depending on how well I know you, got to get to know y'all i'd tell you a dirty your story next time but i, I just figured i'd go with something in oh, the I theme look forward of to it. <laughs> i look forward to it um yes so this time we actually will let you go thank you so much um it's been an awesome time talking to you and thank, thank you so much thank you for everything um you know i love what you're doing here and really really i, I feel honored that i was able to come and share my ideas so um you know silly. take care of yourself take care <laughs> of yourself be safe and good luck with your work and everything else thank you likewise take All care right. man Bye. bye